Hi, it's Paul Camillos. Welcome to Series 5 of Shooting the Breeze. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin as we talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. This marks the start of our fourth year of covering women's hoops and women in hoops. And throughout the series, we welcome experts like Lyndon Moore from New Zealand and other special guests from across the world to get a global picture of the game. During this series, we'll take a closer look at the grassroots and the passionate people at the community level. And of course, the 30th edition of the FIBA Women's Asia Cup was recently held in Sydney, where the Opals took bronze and Asia's best players put on a show. Hit that subscribe button and to show your support, rate and leave us a review on iTunes so we reach more listeners. There was me, Carla Boyd and Gina Stevens were the youngest of the group. We were about 18, I think, when we were away or something like that. But And Michelle Brogan won MVP of the tournament. We beat Russia in the final, just like I did in my senior world championship. <laughs> So it was amazing, like it really was, and um, yeah, a lot of memories. I mean, I don't remember all of it. I suppose we're going to relive it all when we go to our reunion next month. It's a pleasure to welcome a true legend of the game to the podcast, Christy Harrower. From humble beginnings in regional Victoria to playing in Russia, Christy shares a slice of not only her playing journey, but also of Australian women's basketball and its changing landscape. Christie's staggering medal count representing the green and gold reflects her never-say-die attitude that typifies an exceptional generation of Opals we were privileged to watch. In October, Christie, alongside her teammates, will celebrate the 30th anniversary of Australia's under-19 gold medal at Seoul, Australia's first gold medal on the world stage, and it helped usher in a golden era for Aussie women's hoops. Now an assistant coach at the Melbourne Boomers, she'll take the reins at the Keelor Thunder next year in the NBL One South. And as an assistant coach, on a recent tour to China, we go behind the scenes with some of our emerging Opals talent and the world's number two team, China. Congratulations to our under-19 gems of 1993. What a legacy. Enjoy. Welcome to Shooting Breeze. Joining me and my co-host, Jacinta Gavind. It's a real legend of Australian basketball, Christy Harrower, joining us just back from China a couple of weeks ago with the Emerging and Young Opals. Christy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Christy, I was going through some of the notes that uh, our producer Mary sent through to me, and I was kind of just ticking through all the the medals and the, the championships that you've got, and... There's some pretty astounding records there. First of all, how did you first get into basketball and get yourself into a position where you've been able to achieve so many things in the sport? Yeah, it all started back in um, Bendigo when I was a young kid. Like, I'm talking young. Everyone said I had a ball in my hand when I was three. And the story is, is that my... Back in the old days, there was only two courts in Bendigo, which are the top two courts. If you ever go to the Bendigo Stadium now, are the top two courts. And my mum actually used to own the canteen there, and she also used to clean the stadium. So I was pretty much up there every night because Dad used to help out, and I suppose he was coaching at the time. And um, there was a mattress in the back of the, the canteen, so if we were up there quite late. Me and my sister would go to sleep on the mattress and then when it was time to go home we would go home but that's how I pretty much started in basketball I was I lived up there every night and uh yeah just loved it that's pretty much almost born to it really when you kind of put it that way yeah I am and like I suppose like I have a dad that's been a successful coach and um all the way through he was you know he was a part of the Braves program he was he started with the men and then we and then he moved on to the women so I pretty much grew up with it and I remember dad telling me a story not long ago which I actually like I can't remember anything when I was younger he said that I used to roll roll around on my roller skates and I used to shoot hoops with the roller skates on so yeah and I honestly do not remember anything like that and I was actually surprised when he actually said it to me but yeah lived up there every day and um grew up loving the game just switching back for a second to China um, you've just got back, as, as we said. How was that tour and 
you know, particularly with the emerging young Opals, this is the, the development of, of a pathway and of new players and next generation coming through. How did it go while you were over there? Yeah, it was really good. You know, like I look at moments like that for the young kids and it gives them a great opportunity to be involved with the Opals and see what it's like to get to that next level. Because at times there's a lot of them that have just played WNBL. There's not so many now that will go to Europe and play. Like, don't get me wrong, there's still players that will go to Europe, but not like it was back in my day when there wasn't much money here in Australia, so we all went overseas to play. And so for these young kids to be able to get that international competition, you know, it was it was a really good experience for them. And I think, you know, China really looked after us. We stayed in nice hotels with good food and and it was a great two weeks for these players to be able to show us what they can do at this level, but also give them a taste of it. And when we say emerging and young, emphasis on the young in Isla Juffman's and Saffron Shields. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, they've gone through the COE and um, you can do that every day. But like I said, when you go to that international experience and like they might play in a junior team, but once again, playing at the senior level is completely different. And China are number two in the world. And they had majority of their squad or their team that we had at Asia Cup. Of course, they had their two big WNBA players players that played at the Asia Cup, they weren't there because they were back in the WNBA. But two of the players that they didn't have that started for their uh, world championship team were there. They didn't play. I think their foreman came back for two games, our last two games. The other three she didn't play. But um, look, they didn't get to play a lot, but they get to see what it's like to get to that level and how quick it is and how much more physical it is and but you know we had people like and Alex Sharp that probably hasn't been in our squad a lot um not that I've been a part of the program you know for a long time but you know the last couple of things I've been in involved with and um Alex Sharp came off the bench and had an unbelievable tour I thought she was really really good Shiloh Hill was good again and then Maylie just does what she does you know like so I mean, they're probably my three standouts from the tour. And once again, it, whenever, even when I was a player, I always made sure that if I wasn't playing in Europe or playing in the WNBA, I always made sure that I made myself available for the Opals because I didn't want anyone else to have that opportunity or get a sniff in there. You know, like that was my spot. I wanted it. I wanted to stay there as long as I could. So these tours are really good to be able to see these up-and-coming players coming through. Just quickly on Alex Sharp, I've heard a lot of different coaches now um, who have coached Alex Sharp in different teams and in different ways and have all said really positive things about her. What is it that makes her such a great competitor and uh, kind of puts a, a different player or someone that stands out to you compared to the others? I think with um, Sharpie, I think what I noticed on tour, and I think I've noticed this through the WNBL, she's just the kid that does all the hard things, you know, like... Maybe she doesn't get as many boards as a, a Maylie does, but, you know, she just does all the little things. She doesn't need to have the ball in her hand. I thought her defense was great. Her help defense was great. Just somebody that actually I felt came out and just did what she had to do to make the, the coaches of the Opals program, you know, look, I'm here. You know, she played well and, and I think she, like I said, she just does those little things for you and there's no fuss about her, there's no high maintenance, there's none of that sort of stuff. She's just a kid that um, is really heading in the right direction. You mentioned about the strength of the Chinese team. Given the relative strength and the age and experience of the Opals, how did you see the Chinese performance against our team and the performance differential between the two how do you see that in terms of the future of how we can compete against the team that is you know in the country as large and as strong as china yeah i think the biggest thing is is that um one thing i thought on tour like i said they had majority of their squad from asia cup and i mean we only won one out of four but most games we only lost anywhere between five and ten points. So to be able to compete with the group that we had and with the group that they had, I thought was very successful tour. And when I look at China, I mean the money that they have involved in their program and the staff and the like it's nearly two staff to one player. It's it's wow. amazing. And they're professional, like they have to do it day in and day out in the whole off season. And then they'll go back and play in their club teams. But, you know, I think the thing is, though, is that 
being number two in the world, we're number three, that I think this is why this tour is so great because it shows these young kids that we can't just cruise in our own league. We can't just cruise in the COE. If we want to get to the level of being great again and winning medals again, this is the level that we need to get to. But I just think the way the Chinese run their stuff, um, very patient, they're strong, they're physical, they get out and run. I think they really have an all-round game now compared to when I was playing. And I suppose it sounds like when you compare national programs, like compare China's national programs to other, especially the competitive countries at World Cups, they obviously put a lot more money and resources. And that to me reads like they really truly make their national program a big priority. Whereas a team like USA don't always make their national program as a priority, as we saw in the Men's World Cup yeah. recently. Yeah. And I think the thing is with that is there's some of those players are getting paid millions and millions and millions of dollars that maybe they don't want to go and play in a world champ. Like, I'm sure they're all going to be there for the Olympics, aren't they? But for in a world championship, maybe they don't want to do that because... I think that comes back to a, more the fact of um, maybe they think that the world championships doesn't mean much or they don't want to get injured because they're about to earn $56 million, you know, like it's that sort of stuff. For the women, I think it's completely different. I think, you know, we're definitely not on the, that type of money. And But I do know I was told while I was in China that, you know, they, they sign any Chinese player that they think they'll make a national program, they sign them up from the age of 14. They do that sort of stuff. They sign them up and this is what I've just heard. And um, they sign them up and I suppose they're theirs, you know, like, and I know it's only just been happening recently where some of these players will go and try out for a WNBA team. But when I was around, you could never do that sort of stuff. You were just there to be in the Chinese program. Wow, it's almost like getting signed up early by a record label and being yeah. kind of groomed to be a great K-pop star or something. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> it's interesting what you're saying about the way that they bring the, the young kids up. Do you think that the fact that they're now starting to let players are now starting to get into the WNBA uh, from China, do you think that that's going to change the style of their game with the, the, the play style that comes back with those players? I don't think so because their coaches have so much control in their program. Like like I said, they do it day in, day out. I remember when Tom Ma was there and I reckon it was in 2008 when he was a part of the, the Chinese program and he told me that he gave them five days off one time and it hit front papers, you know, because it's never heard of, you know, like it's like I think they train six days a week. They only get a Sunday off. Like it's that sort of stuff. So I think... I'm not sure that it will change a lot because I've actually, I feel like in a way it is starting to become, they do run a bit of structure and they run a bit of structure for their, their studs. They're trying to get the ball to their studs. So it, I mean, it is completely different to the, the Korean team or the Japanese, like they're completely different again. So maybe they are going to more the modern style of basketball and but they've got the players to be able to do it too they've got such great inside players and and great outside players let's step away from china for a second and you know we're going to wind back the clock we're going to wind back the clock a bit now <laughs> <laughs> And we were lucky enough to hear you speak about this at the Asia Cup. This is the 30th anniversary of the Gems under-19s gold. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at, at that She Hoops event, you shared part of that story. And we were really lucky to be able to hear that from you. We'd really like to get some of that story out to our listeners. So could you just kind of give us a bit of a recap of that? Yeah, so we're actually having our reunion this year in Canberra in October for our 30 years of winning our first gold medal for Australian basketball in junior and senior. And it's funny when you call us gems because back in those days we were never called the gems and it's a bit hard to get my head around, but we were just called the junior team. And we had, um, I know it's completely different these days because there's so many Australian programs that they have under the BA banner. So we had three and a half years preparation together. And I think in that time we won 63 games and lost 13 or something like that. And we never lost to a junior team. We only lost to a senior team. So we did do a lot of traveling. I remember being a 16-year-old in that junior program and our first, my first ever trip overseas was to Spain and got a bit homesick at that time because being a 16-year-old, never been away overseas. But 
Yeah, like and it was an amazing campaign. It was an amazing team that we had together. I think I worked out maybe five or six of us went on and played for the Opals. There was myself, Jenny Whittle, Michelle Brogan, Carla Boyd, Joe Hill, Michelle Chandler. And, you know, and then we had, I think there was me, Carla Boyd and Gina Stevens were the youngest of the group. We were about 18, I think, when we were away or something like that. But and Michelle Brogan won MVP of the tournament. We beat Russia in the final, just like I did in my senior world championship. <laughs> so it was amazing. Like, it really was. And, um, yeah, a lot of memories. I mean, I don't remember all of it. I suppose we're going to relive it all when we go to our reunion in next month. And you mentioned there that you also got a gold medal again in basketball, which means you're one of a very, very small and select group in Australia, in Australian <laughs> basketball. It's actually got two gold medals from international competition. Yeah, there's me. It's actually me and um, Jenny Whittle are the only two that have junior and senior gold medal. I mean, both the world championships gold. There's no Olympics in there yet, but uh, not yet. I'm not coming back to play. When I say that. But um, yeah, is there's me and Jenny Whittle because we're both a part of the juniors and are both a part of the senior world championship teams that won both golds. Good. Would have been like history repeating when you met Russia again in the grand final of your senior world championship when you won that year. Yeah, it was that was amazing. Like I look, other than seeing photos and uh, video, because Phil Brown made up a highlight of us winning the gold medal back in '93, uh, and he had it to Tina Turner, simply the best. Like it was amazing footage. Other than like, I don't remember a lot of because I mean, so long ago, thirty years. You move on, right? So, but that gold medal in Brazil with the senior team was I don't know. It's I think it's one of my favorite f memories of the Opals, and I think. The reason is, is because I think the chemistry that we had as a group, you know, I've been in the program for a while and we'd lost to USA all the time in the gold medal game at the Olympics. And I think the biggest thing was, is that Russia, and a lot of people say like, you didn't play USA, you only played Russia. It's like, no, we didn't just only play Russia. Um, Russia had just beat USA and then we went on and beat Russia. But I think, you know, when, when I look at people like, Penny Taylor had an absolutely amazing tournament, won MVP of the tournament, and then you had Lauren. And we only had a day preparation together because Lauren was away the WNBA. She'd made the finals with the Seattle Storm. And so we really only had a day preparation. And then our first game we didn't even get to play because uh, Lithuania, I think it was at the time, was went through somewhere that had yellow fever and they didn't have injections. So we just played a, a green and gold scrimmage in front of fans and in front of our family that were there. So, And we always say in a tournament, we always say that our first game and the quarterfinal are the hardest because first game, because it's your nerves, you know, the, the tournament's just starting. Sometimes you might not know some players because you don't know which teams have selected, you know, somebody. We had, I don't think we'd ever played Lithuania, to be honest with you. And then quarterfinals, because if you lose, you don't medal. So we always say that, but to be able to win, and we actually won comfortably against Russia. I think we did in the end in the 2006 World Championships, and I think we did in our junior one in 93, but both great memories um, winning gold. I don't think people realise, well, particularly now looking back, they don't realise how tough Russia was in those days. They, they were a tough team. Powerhouse, absolute powerhouse of women's basketball. Like I think it was always, majority of the times it was always, especially at the World Championships, it was always USA, Russia, then us. But at an Olympic Games, it was always different. It was always, you know, USA, us, then Russia or something like that. But Russia were an absolute powerhouse of women's sport. I don't know what happened there. I don't know why we never see them anymore. I mean, of course, the war and everything is on now. But I played in Russia for a season and we had a rule when we played in Russia. It was in 2007 I played in Russia and we had a rule that whenever we played in the Russian league, they had to have three Russians on the court at all times. And so what was happening is because I was with one of the rich clubs, Lauren was with one of the rich clubs, that what was happening is they would buy so many imports, but you could only play two at a time, but they didn't care. they just buy imports. So then it was like the Russians were missing out in a way. And so they had this rule that when you played EuroLeague or you played EuroCup, you know, you have your two imports, but you could have as many European players as you wanted to. 
Mm. But when we played in the Russian league, they had to have three Russians on the court at all times. So anytime you made a sub, the coaches had to work it out, right? So it's not easy. You're just not making a sub for the sake of making a sub. You've got to go, all right, I've got to keep this girl out here. So it means I've got to rotate a Russian. Like, But what I believe is that I'm wondering if because of that rule, they become so valuable and they got paid so much money that they end up stopped working. Like they stopped working hard, stopped being great because they were just getting the money anyway because of the rule that they had. I mean, that's just my theory. I got no idea, but that's what I believe why maybe they're just not a powerhouse anymore. Just became a bit complacent. Mm, I think so. Well, I mean, you know, if, if they're throwing bottomless pits of money at the problem, yeah. that, that does tend to happen. Yeah. I mean, my club, we had, like for me, when I was there, I had my own translator. I had my own driver. We had our own private jet. Like it was, like it was incredible like it was things that you dream of you know like it's yeah but it was it was amazing and you've also had experience in the WNBA as well you know debuting for Phoenix Mercury which has along with Seattle a huge Australian connection how did you find that change in game style between WNBL and WNBA and also how you found it in Europe as well my first year in, in the WNBA was actually the second year of the league in 98. Michelle Timms actually got me over there, um, didn't go through any draft, none of that sort of stuff. And Michelle Timms was over there. And my first year in the WNBA, I was on like $15,000. Like it's completely different now. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think the, the next year, the wage went up to 30000 or something like that. So it was a lot different back in those days. Yeah, so Michelle Timms got me over there. And and to be honest with you, for the amount of years that I played in the WNBA, I felt like I actually struggled. I don't know if I was not selfish enough or just um, my mindset was different. I always felt when I played, say, in the WNBL or I played in Europe or I played with the Opals, not saying it was my team, but I felt like it was my team. I felt like I could have control as the point guard. And I suppose when you're in those programs, you're in, in them for, like if I'm playing in Europe, I'm in there for eight months. You know, when you go to the WNBA, your pre-season is four weeks and then all of a sudden you're in season. So, yeah, I really struggled in the WNBA for that reason and didn't play a lot. Like I look at it, it's probably my own fault because my mindset wasn't the same as what I'd be in those other countries that I was playing in. But if I had to pick a league that I really enjoyed playing in was actually Europe. I loved Europe for the amount of time that I was there. Um, I spent five years in France and absolutely loved it. Like it was a lot like Australia where it was very defensive orientated structure in the offense. And and I just loved the people. I loved the country. Yeah, it's one of my favorite times away from home. Going back to when you said that you felt like you struggled a bit in the WNBA, was it a difference of expectations placed on you from the coaching staff or was the role of a point guard maybe perceived as a little bit different in that league compared to your other playing leagues and experiences? Yeah, I think it was the point guard role was a little bit different. I think the WNBA has changed a lot now compared to those early days. Like I think it was um, a lot more... I mean, I know they have, they're still going to have their moments where it's a lot more one-on-one, -on -one, but I think it's a little bit more structured now. And I grew up with structure. That was the way I knew how to play, as well as like, you know, you could get out and run, but it was none of the stuff that it is now where it's like dribble handoff, all pick and roll stuff, where as a point guard, I really needed to be that thinking point guard for the, the teams that I played for. And I think in the WNBA, you only needed to do that sometimes because, it, I mean, there's so many great athletes over there. They can play a lot of, a lot more one-on-one. -on -one. And that's what I felt like it was a lot like back in that time. But like I said, it's changed now. There is a little bit more structure. But I think it was just my mindset of just not being... And I shouldn't say selfish. I won't say selfish because I never thought I was ever a selfish player. I probably would say that I just wasn't aggressive enough. Yeah, maybe. It's, it sounds a little bit like as well where in other teams and other roles, your intelligence and ability to lead as a point guard wasn't always needed in WNBA because you had the luxury of having mm. superior athletes that could just rely on athleticism to make plays instead of using the basketball like you which is a weird position to be in because normally it's the other way around you play at a higher level you need more smarts but then it almost sounded like your smarts weren't really needed as much yeah and and I think that could be a part of it too because I know 
I always felt that when I played, if the coach didn't let me think the game, um, if they were the ones calling the play all the time and just not letting me have the flow, I actually really struggled. I really struggled in that way where if the coach trusted me to be able to call the play that I wanted to call and like, cause I was always that thinking type point guard. People say that I had a good IQ for the game and like if I could think of a play to run for which person at which time and put them in their right positions and wrinkle an offense here and there, that's when I played at my best. If I had a coach that took that away from me, that's when I really struggled. You must be really good at chess as well, thinking so many moves ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) So when you do find that you've got a coach who is trying to basically run the team like, like chess pieces, have you come up with any strategies to try and, let's say, nudge them in the right direction? No, I don't think so. I think um, I was lucky enough to have a lot of coaches that trusted me in to make the decision. Or even when I went to Europe, I mean, they had to learn how I played as well. Like I was, I think the hardest one was when I went to my first season after I blew out my knee, I went back to France and I went to Aix-en-Provence where the French hadn't really seen me play. And I stayed there for three years, but then my last two years, I went to another French club that was more professional as in they were always in Euroleague. So that coach had already seen me play. Mm. So, And I think I played my best basketball under him in Europe. He was an amazing coach. Not that I understood everything that he said, but he just let me run the show. Like, don't get me wrong. He, the girls reckon at times he was negative, but because I couldn't speak a lot of French, I'm like, well, I don't hear it. You know, like, it's, <laughs> so but I think he was the type of coach where if you had people that were lazy, then he was probably negative to them. But because I was always somebody that trained my butt off, no matter what part of the season it was, I was always at training. It was, I was always, as soon as I step over that white line, I was always, always ready to go like it was a game. And so I think he had the respect for me to be able to run the show but I've never really had a coach. Um, I mean, I, I think I did have one coach and I think the biggest thing was just sitting down and saying, look, have the trust that the seniors are going to get it done for you and have the trust that we'll make the right play at the right time. And But, you know, it's really up to them, to the way they coach. And sometimes it's a, it's hard, you know, like I'm going to learn all that now, aren't I? <laughs> the shoe is certainly on the other foot now, Christy. <laughs> and it's a good point. What advice would you give to younger players who are coming through, given everything that you've experienced, without obviously giving away too much as to how they can kind of try and finesse you as a coach either? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, I remember I had a coach when I was about, I don't know how old I was, but I was in Bendigo and he said that I would never ever play for Australia. And, and I think, you know, my dad took me out of that team straight away. And it wasn't so much of that. He just knew that it was time to get out of the country and travel to Melbourne and get the competition that I needed. Cause it was such a big difference in country and Metro back in those times. And where I know now in, in Melbourne that a lot of the country teams play in the Metro league, but it wasn't like that when I played. So I was traveling down every Friday night to play in Melbourne um, with Melbourne Tigers. But I think the biggest thing was is that for me, it didn't matter what a coach would say to me, like if I wasn't going to make it or anything like that, I always I had the mentality that it was always like, oh, well, I'm going to show you. Do you know, I always had that mentality. I never had, you know, like even um, Carrie Graff in my last Olympics when I was 37 years old, had bad Achilles problems on both. I was sort of... I was at camp, but I was one day on, one day off. And, and, you know, through my whole, pretty much from 2000 on to 2012, I was the starting point guard for Australia. And um, she said to me, oh, you might have to go and see a sports psychologist because your role might change. Probably, you know, saying that sort of stuff, knowing how I would react by her saying that to me. So, like, she's probably doing the right thing, thinking that she's doing the right thing. Where I never dealt with a sports psychologist ever, I think, my dad was always my sports psychologist. And I, when she was talking to me about that, you know, I'm taking it in, I'm listening. And I didn't say anything to her, but I'm like, in the back of my mind, it's like, I'm showing you, I'm doing the work away from the floor. Next time I'm on floor, I'm going to show you, this is my spot. I'm keeping it, you know? So, and I think that's the biggest thing. I think for young kids coming through, and I know life has changed, but I think the biggest thing is work ethic. If you have that work ethic and you have that drive, you have the love for the game, you have the determination, 
you don't care if people are trying to put you down you want to prove them wrong like if you have all that I think you can achieve anything and that was the way I was I don't know I just had that drive to I wanted to be one of the best I wanted to be the best in my position and I think that's what drove me and even when I was 37 38 still playing at 39 my drive was to prove to people that I was still good enough to play at this level at my age. I think that was the biggest thing. Is The thing that I loved the most was always proving people wrong. I mean, you, you mentioned Olympics. I mean, you've got three silver and one bronze Olympic medal. One of the things that, for me anyway, seems to have occurred over the last few years is here in Australia, we've lost a little bit of that knowledge of the history of the Opals. Mm. And, and we've forgotten that, the team has, you know, it's got a gold medal. It's got silvers in the Olympics, silver in World Cup. It's This is a team that's achieved so much, and we just seem to have forgotten it somehow. I mean, from your perspective, from somebody who's participated in all those events, what should we be doing to try and bring that knowledge back to, you know, the younger players coming through? Um, I think the biggest thing is, is that... People have forgotten what we achieved uh, a while ago because of what was happening before Tokyo Olympics and that sort of stuff, you know. So, like, the stuff that happened with Liz and, and then trying to, like, we weren't getting great publicity and the Opals are all about being professional, being relentless. And I think that was the biggest thing with the Opals back in my time is that, like I said earlier on in this, is that, there wasn't much money around here in Australia. So a lot of us went overseas. So we become world-class players, you know, like Lauren and Penny, world-class, two of the best players Australia's ever produced as in not just here in Australia, but they were the best in the world in the WNBA, in Europe. You know, we had those type of players. And then you had people like myself, Susie Bakovich, Belinda Snell. Like we were lucky that we went through with a core group. I mean, me and Lauren started together. We made our first World Cup together. So we went through together for such a long time. And I think I shouldn't always say that medals, everybody remembers medals, you know, because they don't. But I think if we can get back to playing the Australian way, the relentless way, the never say die attitude, if we can do that, you know, I think the Opals will start getting recognised again. I think the hardest thing is, though, with the Opals is that some of these girls make such great money in the WNBA now. So what happens is it takes you away from that preparation that we had for such a long time. Like I know that when I went to an Olympic Games, it was pretty much stay at home or you're not going to make it. Mm. So it's harder for them to be able to do that now because these girls are making so much money in the WNBA unless BA are going to pay over 100000 each for a player if that's what they're on. You struggle to keep them home, you know, so to have that preparation time together. But I mean, everybody loves a winner, you know, like if we can start winning again, start winning medals, these little kids will start recognising these role models. I mean, you're dealing with social media, you're dealing with kids being on their iPads all the time, you know, like it's, I think that's the hardest thing right now is when I talk about, like I did before, having a work ethic, I mean, that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Because kids just don't want to have that work ethic anymore, you know, like kids are just happy to cruise and not do the hard yards and because a lot of us back in our time, we wanted to be the best. That, I think that's the difference. And like I said, a lot of us played overseas. I think when we talk about to the successes of Opals not getting a lot of attention, it was at a time where basketball, particularly female basketball in Australia, already wasn't getting a lot of media mm -hmm. attention and it doesn't really still now. But the help of social media and alternative media as well has definitely helped in the last decade. Yep. But the other thing is you mentioned the events leading into Tokyo, as I'll refer it to. Yeah. Um, it's just unfortunate that when we do get a lot of mainstream media attention for the Opals, it is about drama and it just yeah. keeps perpetuating that idea of females being emotional and dramatic as people and in, in sport. And we got to try and, and turn that around a little bit. But interesting, you've also recognised that juniors at the moment, it's the work ethic when you, when you coach a young team or something that they don't want to put in the work ethic. Yeah. And for me, it looks like they're taking the competitiveness out of competition sport. Yeah. It's kind of like missing, I shouldn't say missing the point um, because there's a lot of good other benefits that come from sport. But if they're not putting in the work uh, to be the best to compete, then it's not really a true competition, right? 
Yeah, and I think the thing is now too, and I don't know if this is one of the reasons, but this is things that I think about. When I played, if I wanted to make a Bendigo Braves team or a Melbourne Tigers team, there was only one team that you could actually make, right? So, and I get the sport is a massive participating sport. I totally understand that. And that's amazing. But the thing is now um, you can have Melbourne Tigers under 12, five. You can have Melbourne Tigers under 14, six. Do you know what I mean? So what happens now is that kids go, oh yeah, I'm in the Bendigo Braves and they're just happy to be team five or team six. Do you know what I mean? And I'm wondering if this is where the competition as in being competitive, we're losing this because we have so many teams and they're just happy to be in that team instead of being in, I, I want to get to the first, you know, like it's little things like that that have changed so much. There's something that we've, we've noticed in the past and both Jacinta and I've commented on it, um, is that international competition, quite often you'll see some players they rarely see court time because they're new into the team and they're just sort of watching them on the bench is a really great indicator of how they're going to perform in the future. Yeah. Yeah, look, and I'm the first to admit that Jade Melbourne is is a unique individual, but when she was in Jacinta, was it the Jordan Games? Asia Cup. Yeah. A couple of years ago in Jordan. Yeah. Yeah, you'd see her on the bench and she was just as excited hmm. as she was there, you know, standing up, waving the towel, revving the team up. And I think that's the sort of character type that you're talking yeah. about. It's a, doesn't matter what your role is, doesn't matter where you are, you're there, you're giving 110%. And yeah. that brings you up in amongst the more elite group as you mature. And when I talk about, when everybody always asks me about 2006 and I talk about the chemistry and I talk about how so many people play well, what people probably don't realise is we had six rookies in that team. So you had we had our main starters that had always been together, but we had six rookies. We had Jenny Screen, Emma Randall, um, Holly Grimer, Tully Bevilacqua at 30-something made her first team, Aaron Phillips, and Emily McInerney. So we had six people that had never played at a major tournament for Australia. And But I tell you, those six sat on the bench, played their role perfectly, did what they had to do, and were just happy to be there. Do you know what I mean? Like, And that's why they continued to be in the Australian team for that reason. Then their roles got bigger, of course, when people retired and, and mm. things like that, their roles got bigger. But we won that World Cup with six first-timers. And uh, three of those six first-timers being Tully, Emily McInerney and Jenny Screen, I imagine would have always been on the cusp yep. of making the, an Opals team and finally getting that chance to go to a World Cup. I imagine they just would have soaked up every single moment of being a part of that program and maximising their time and doing their best for the team because they had worked so hard for so long to finally make that roster. Yeah, and those three that you talk about or all defensive players. Do you know what I mean? Like they can score, but when you talk about Tully Bevilacqua and you talk about Emily McInerney, I'd love to know how many defensive players of the years that they've won in WNBL together. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, oh, yeah. you know, like it's amazing that, and that's what I mean. They played their role perfectly and they were happy to be there. And, you know, and Tully deserved to be there. She'd worked her butt off for so long probably me being there and you know it was harder for guards to get in but she decided to go and play overseas and her game changed so much she played in the WNBA that she actually became a stud you know like it was for somebody that was just more defensive her offensive game got better and she actually became a really great international player in Australia in Europe and in the WNBA. I think the Defensive Player of the Year Award for the WNBL eventually will hopefully be renamed after Emily. Oh, no, it's named after Robin Mai, isn't it? For Robin yeah. Because <laughs> Emily McInerney, to my knowledge, has won about five times. Yeah, I reckon it could even be more than that. I'd love to know how many Tully's won as well. Like, those two together, thank God they never played on the same team. <laughs> oh, yeah, shut it down. Just shut it down. Don't turn up. Just forfeit those games. <laughs> and then... You decided to come home and play for Bendigo. So you've been overseas, you've got all this amazing experience, and you've come back. First of all, what got you into that frame of mind to come back and play at Bendigo? And then I'm really curious to understand how different you found it moving from all that global experience to coming back and playing in the WNBL. Um, 
A lot of people probably don't know this, but it was not my plan to come back. I actually had another year left on my Russian contract and they cut me, pretty much cut me. So there was rumours in the off-season, so that was 2008. I played a year in Russia with Ekaterinburg and then because my French coach that I said that I played well with, mm. he took me to Russia because he ended up being the coach in that Russian team. So he took me to Russia with him as well as Sandrine Gruder was our other player that people might know from France. She was young at the time. And so we played two years in Valenciennes together in France and then he took us to Russia. So I played a season in Russia and so there was rumours in the off-season that they were going to cut me and they never did it because I think at that time we'd travelled to Italy with the Australian team to play against Russia. The Russian girls that I'd played with were talking about it, but they never did anything. And then two weeks after the Olympics or two weeks before the start of the season, they decided they wanted to cut me. It was two weeks before the season in Russia. And they wanted to trade me from, I suppose in Europe, they call it like trading in a way where, for example, if I got traded to go to say another team in France, the French club would pay me so much of my contract and then the Russian club would pay me the rest. So that's how that would work. And in the end, I thought, no, nah, stuff is use of, done this two weeks out from the season. Bendigo was only a year old and I'm like, well, I'm going to stay at home and play. And I think I was 33 at the time. I'd already been overseas for seven or eight years. And I'm like, well, I'm going to stay at home and play and you can pay me. So Bendigo got me for nothing and the Russian club paid me. And um, we had uh, huge bonuses um, in our contract. And of course they won some things that year and I was even trying to get my bonuses, but that didn't work. But I ended up getting paid. They did pay me late, like probably rubbing it in a bit, but I was onto them. I'm like, well, talking to my agent, like I haven't been paid yet. They've got to pay me. Yeah. So I stayed at home and played. And then after that, I never went back. And it's funny, my husband's always like, oh, we should gone back, you know, for the money. But I look at it and go, well, if I'd gone back, I'm not sure my body would have got to four Olympics. You know, like I was only 33 at the time, but the European season such a grinding season. It's eight months and it's just trained twice a day, every day, you know, and I was playing twice a week in EuroLeague and the French League, so or Russian League. So, yeah, that was the reason why I ended up coming home. And I think because Dad was coach and I think Bendigo being my hometown, if that wasn't the case and it was another team that maybe had wanted to get me, I probably would have gone back because it was my hometown and dad was coach. That was the reason why I stayed home. Wow, that's a story I don't think I've actually heard before. That's yeah. outstanding. <laughs> a bit of a blessing in disguise given that it was, you know, Bendigo were in their infancy and you got to play at home at someone else's expense. And then it wasn't too much longer after you started playing for Bendigo that you won a championship with them. Yeah, that's right. Then I think after that season, when the Russians cut me, they end up getting Cappy Pondexter. So it was like Christy Hara or Cappy Pondexter, you know, like, all right, go for Cappy Pondexter, you know, like a USA top player. Um, so they end up getting her. But then Bendigo um, tried to make a deal with me the year after of being general manager of their club for a couple of years and, and getting paid to play at the same time. And, and then, yeah, in 2012, we won our first championship for Bendigo and, and with dad. And yeah, it was an amazing feeling really. It was a just, uh, look, same thing. When I talk about 2006, I'll talk about that with Bendigo, the chemistry that we had, like we had our core group together, same thing for a, a long time in Kelly Wilson, myself, Gabe Richards and Chelsea Obrey. And then we brought an American in that actually had a bad knee. And I went up to Chelsea Obrey one day and I said, do you know any Americans that we can bring in she goes, oh, I know a girl that I used to play with at college and she's an absolute rebounding machine. And in the end, it was Kelsey Griffin that we brought in and just really changed the dynamics of our team and bringing somebody in so athletic and it really helped us win a championship. And gone on to potentially be the best WNBL import ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, I mean, we won, I think we won two in a row. We went to the third. I fell pregnant in the third grand final. And, and then she went up to Canberra and won two more up there. And I think she's nearly won MVP of every final, I think. So, you know, and the good thing was is that she fitted into our program. And, and I remember it took six weeks to get her visa for some reason. And she was she started off really well with us at training. And then she was sort of starting to drop a little bit. And I just went up to her and I said, look, just because you're an import in our league, I know you've played overseas, but 
don't feel like you have to score. You have to be the big top scorer in our team. I said, um, you know, we've got our core that's been together for such a long time. Just come and fit in. Just do the things that you do well. And, yeah, and she ended up having a great season for us. That's so interesting. Like, that's such sound advice even then because I still feel like we get top imports into the WNBL. You know, we're attracting a lot more WNBA talent, which is great but you can sense that tension in their first couple of rounds where they feel like they have to be the be-all and end-all of their teams and you can see that becomes to their detriment to their game and then they adjust in a little bit. But interesting that was your advice to Kelsey because I feel like that's exactly her biggest strength now as she's played in the WNBL. She is the one that's filling all the gaps in whatever roster she's in. She's the one contesting all the rebounds. She's the one that ch can change the intensity and the pace of a game very quickly. And that kind of stuff is probably not the traditional thing that you would really sign an import for. Yeah, and I think the thing was is that, like I said, because we had our core together for so long, like my dad as a coach was always about team first. It was never about recruiting individuals or having individuals that take over the team. He he hated players like that. It was one of the things that he never wanted to recruit. He just wanted players to do it for one another, do it within the system, buy into the system, respect him, and do it for one another. And I think when we won those championships, we were a team that, because he was so big on defense, that we were a team that... You know, people always talked about our defense and my dad had a completely different philosophy compared to textbook coaches or what's in the textbook. You know, he was more the push middle type coach and but it has to be a team thing. You can't do it individually. And and I think um, the biggest thing was is that she came in, fitted into our program and, like I said, did the things that when – don't get me wrong, when we needed a bucket, we would go to her. Or she'd go out and get, you know, 10 rebounds a game. Like, she'd do all those little things for us to be great. It's kind of funny hearing, oh, yeah, just go out and get 10 rebounds a game, just those little things. <laughs> yeah, that's what Kelsey used to do, though. Like, she was an absolute machine with that sort of stuff and just put her body on the line. And it did. It completely changed our program and, and made us into a, you know, championship team. Did you ever see when you were growing up as a junior or even, you know, as a teenager when you were still travelling to Melbourne to have to play, did you or your dad ever think that Bendigo would have a WNBL club one day? No, I know it was always dad's dream. Like he was the one that actually started the program with two other people from Bendigo. So it was his dream. But I don't think, like he was, even when he was taking me to Melbourne on a Friday night, he was involved with the Braves program and making that a successful program because he was successful with the Siebel back in those days. He was successful with that program. And and I think I think he won five Siebel championships and two national championships. And he thought it was time to, I think he wanted to challenge himself, but he didn't really want to move out of Bendigo. And I think um, the biggest thing was he knew we had the facilities. We knew we'd probably have the backing in Bendigo to be able to do it. And that's why he wanted to do it. And it was a dream of his to be able to do that as well. And now you're, uh, like we said earlier, your shoe is on the other foot <laughs> because you're heading into a lot of pinnacle coaching roles. You had a season with the Melbourne Boomers, uh, as we mentioned as well, in the Australian Opals coaching roster as well, with one of your former Bendigo teammates, Renee Garlop. <laughs> so it's come full circle. And you recently announced that you were going to be the head coach of the Keelor Thunder for the NBL One South 2024 season. As a coach now, what are some of the most significant changes in the women's game that you've witnessed? Oh, there's a lot of changes. I don't know if it's good changes, but um, <laughs> there's not much inside game. Guards don't know how to pass to post players. A lot of dribble handoff, a lot of pick and roll. Like It's so different now. Like it's Don't get me wrong, we got... I think we've got better athletes now than probably when we were around, but the IQ sort of gone out of the game a little bit. And, um, yeah, it's a very quick game. It's a very athletic game. I'm not sure why we all run dribble handoff stuff because I'm not sure how much we get off it. But um, I suppose that's me learning the new way of basketball. But it um, doesn't mean I will coach that way. And don't get me wrong, like even the way I played it or even the way I thought the game, people might not think like that anymore. And so I'll just have to go with what's best for my personnel um, when I'm coaching like Keelor. And, and I think I want to be like that as a coach. Like I really, 
liked some of the coaches I had. I liked how my dad really made people buy into his system and, and respect what he did and, and have players uh, have input as well. Not not every player, but be able to talk, you know, during... Because the thing is, is that the players are on the court. They're the ones that are feeling something. You know, like I know when I used to do scout with bending, I'm like, I'm going to get over it this way because I just, that was the way I did it and it worked and I kept doing it and it worked. And, you know, so it's things like that. But the game is so different now and um, something I'm still getting used to, to be honest with you. I do like how you said you're going to coach for what's best for the personnel that you have because I think over time, whether it's as a coach or a player, but particularly I've seen trends with coaches at a lot of different levels and a lot of different levels of experience is that they forget you've got to work with the strengths that you have on your roster, do away with the trends of, you know, the game style is now layups or threes or everything around a pick and roll. If that's not what is your strength of your roster, you're not going to have very good success. No, and look, don't get me wrong, there'll be times I might put something in. Like there's, I still remember offences that I that I liked, you know, as a player or that I felt that worked a lot with the team that I would have played with. And, and there might be times where I'll put that offence in, but if it doesn't work, I'm not going to continue with it, you know. So I was always a guard that... We would run an offense and if the defense, like just say you play a team two or three times and the defense start to get used to what we're running, I'd always try and think of a wrinkle to be able to, I always call them wrinkles, a wrinkle to be able to, well, if the defense is cheating, we'll cheat back and this is what we'll do. You know, I'm not sure if kids can do that these days, but I'm happy to, like if I pick up a point guard, I'm happy to mentor that point guard and try and think that way. doesn't mean they have to do it all the time, but yeah, I think the biggest thing is 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 finding what works for the people that you have. And I'm disappointed that we've gone away from the inside game because there is po- – I feel sorry for the post now. I probably didn't when I was playing, but um, <laughs> I feel sorry for them because they don't touch the ball. You know, guards don't know how to throw it in there sometimes. They don't even see it when they're open at times. Like, it's so different. And, like, I'm screaming, she's open, she's open, and by the time they see it, the defense comes and – so it's um yeah if I can um work with a group like that that or coach like that way um but I want to be a very confident type coach I want to be able to I know what it's like and I was like this in the WNBA not to have confidence and when a player doesn't have confidence the game is so much harder you second guess everything I'm not going to say everyone will always have confidence because you're going to have players that will play more than what other players do but if I can be a teaching type coach and a try and give my players confidence. I think I learned as I got older that we're all going to make mistakes out on the floor. The biggest thing is how quick you can turn that mistake into getting onto the next play. And that's the way I want to teach my team that I coach. One thing you said there to me sounds really interesting in that do you think that because we're starting to see coaches step up from the era of players that you were part of, Do you think we're going to start seeing maybe people looking back to some of the plays that worked in the past and try and see if they can bring it into the game just to try and, like you said, throw a wrinkle in? Um, I think so. I think if you're a point guard and now you go and coach, you might try that. Or if you're a shooting guard, you might go, all right, let's run this because I always used to get a shot off that. They might do it, but then you have some coaches that might just follow another coach and go, all right, I see this on film. I really like that offense. Let's just go chuck it in. You have coaches like that as well. So, and don't get me wrong, like I watch a lot of basketball and there's times I see that and go, that might work for one of my players and you think about it and I would visualize a lot. So you would think about that sort of stuff, throw it in. And what I usually, what well, my dad used to do it all the time, what he would do is don't show the whole group. He'd get five to come and draw it up on the board, run it without the defence knowing to see if it would work or not. So it'd be things like that that I would like to do. And uh, another Australian point guard that we have interviewed on Shooting the Breeze before, Nat Hurst, she also mentioned that over her playing career, she actually used to keep like a folder of all of the things that she used to like as a player or that a coach implemented in the team she was in. And now she's trying to use what she can from that folder when she's coaching the Adelaide Lightning. 
It's funny you say that because I was always like, yeah, I'm going to write these down. I'm going, but I'll remember them. You know, I'll remember them. Now I can't remember half the stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, like it's funny because I'll see a drill and I'm like, oh, we used to do that. It's things like that. Like it's, I wish that I'd done it, but I think because I loved a lot of the European stuff, but I think because you train every day that you just, yeah, I always just assumed I was going to remember. Always. That's not the case now. I used to fall into the trap of seeing something like on TV and then writing it down like the play phases, like drawing down the play phases in a book and then writing shorthand notes. So then I'd go to coach my team the next week to implement it, but then not understand what I wrote down. <laughs> then it was completely useless. So I just have these random diagrams with these shorthand notes where I'm like, I actually don't understand what I mean here at all. Yeah, what I actually do now is if I'm on Instagram and I'm scrolling and somebody puts, like, if there's a reel or something and I'm like, I really like that offense, I'll save it. See, back in my day, I couldn't do that. Like, we didn't have FaceTime. We didn't have any of that sort of stuff. And we didn't even have iPhones back then. So you couldn't take a video or you couldn't take a photo with your phone. Like, it's so different now that you can do that sort of stuff. But even when I'm watching the NBA or something on TV, I'm like, oh, I really like that out-of-bounds play. I can at least rewind it, video it, and it's in my folder now. So, but, yeah, back in my day, there was none of that sort of stuff. No, it was printed playbooks, learning a whole other language of <laughs> basketball software and learning play phases by pictures. <laughs> Do you find that all the technology that's available to a coach nowadays and look, I work in the tech space, so I look at it and it's like sometimes it can be really useful and other times what seems like it'd be really useful could be really difficult and make your life harder. Do you think that maybe too much tech is not good for a coach? Yeah, sometimes I think so. It's funny you say that because as you started to ask me that question, I thought about the time when I used to... So when I played in Bendigo, I still lived in Melbourne, so I'd travel up we train Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, and I stay at mum and dad's because I always had my own bedroom there. And and dad would get out the DVD and put it on, and we'd watch watch a game. And but dad was the type when he wanted to see something, he'd put it in slow motion. I was just like, oh, here we go again. Like it's where I'd see it straight away, and uh, he'd put it in the slowest motion. I'm just like, yeah, but this happens here. And then, but he wanted wanted to see it himself. <laughs> And, like, I even tell him, like, what we have now. He goes, oh, I wish I had that back in my day, you know. Like, so the huddle and the sports code and even we have fast scout. Like, it's it's amazing that we have all that. The biggest thing is, is getting the players to see it. Sometimes, like, for example, we have fast scout where you put all your scout on, but you don't know if the players are actually looking at it or not, you know, where – once upon a time, used to print things off, take it to the game or take it wherever they needed it so they could actually read it. When you get older and you've been around long enough, you don't need to fully read all the scout. And you don't want to go into too much detail anyway because they don't have the attention span to take it all in. I don't think any of us have, right? So you want to have maybe three or four points, that's enough. But some of the stuff that is around now is just it's great for coaches but then if you get a coach that is over the top with scout, it's not good. It's not good because as a player, you don't want all that. You just need a bit of information, what they do good, what their weaknesses are. We can even put on the fast scout. We can put in their, their videos from the week before of individual scout. You know, like it's amazing what you can do now. Okay, Christy, it's been great having you on the show. It's been great talking about, you know, some of the, the great history of of Australian basketball, your stories about Europe and Russia. I mean, I've got to say, the private planes thing, that, that really got me. <laughs> you know, your, your time in Bendigo, the championship, it really has been a pleasure having you on and just talking about all this stuff. Thanks so much. We're really looking forward to seeing how things develop with the Opals, with Kilo Thunder in, in the NBL One South, with the WNBL over the, the upcoming season. I think there's a lot of really good stuff happening in basketball at the moment. We just need to be able to get it out there to more people. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's funny how we talk about social media. It's a problem for kids. We actually, it's it's a good thing for trying to get things out there as well, like for sporting clubs, women's sport, like social media is probably better than a paper, you know. So 
it's a two-way street there and but yeah hopefully women's sport is growing that is the good thing it's you know having the Matildas in town or in Australia it's really growing and it's good to see it really is and it's really good that the girls can get paid some money and and whatever they you know do now that in whatever sport they do they get paid professionally because that's what we want we want them to get paid professionally but when I say that we still want them to be able to work hard and not just take it for granted either Christy Harrow, thanks so much for joining us on Shooting the Breeze. Can't wait to try and catch up with you again in the future to see how things are developing for you as well. No worries. Anytime. Thanks. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.